Frida Kahlo was dead to begin with. No doubt whatever about that. She died on Tuesday, July 13, 1954, sometime between 4 and 6 in the morning. Her nurse, her chauffeur, two doctors in the media all declared her dead. But still, there is some doubt. Her eyes are open. Her body is still soft. There's no rigor mortis. The hairs on her arms are standing up. When a friend kisses her goodbye, Kahlo gets goose pimples. She's alive, her friend shouts, according to the account in Hayden Herrera's 1983 biography. Even after Kahlo's body is moved to the Grand Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City, where she lies in state in a coffin in the lobby for some 15 hours, there are doubts. Kahlo's husband, Diego Rivera, asks a doctor to cut her veins to see if any blood runs out. But very little does. The next day, Kahlo's body is taken to a crematorium. She's dressed in her typical black Tijuana skirt and a white weeple. Her hair braided with ribbons and flowers. A ring on every finger. Everyone crowds around her in this cramped crematorium, singing and crying. And then the oven doors swing open, and a blast of heat bellows out. And the cart that Kala was lying on begins pulling her body mechanically toward the flames. Kahlo suddenly sits up with the force of the blast and her hair ignites and blazes around her head like a halo. Frida Kahlo is dead, but something is happening to the people around her. Something about her is coming alive in them. As Herrera describes it in her book, As Kahlo is being pulled into the oven, people throw themselves on top of her and begin tugging at her hands, yanking at her fingers, trying to pull off her rings as a kind of relic. This is the Object Podcast. Produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Episode 2 of Season 3. Today, the story of how Frida Kahlo became an icon. Long after she was dead and forgotten. What does she mean to those who worship her? And what does it mean to become an emoji in the afterlife? I'm Tim Gearing. ago, a professor at Harvard gives her students an assignment. Get out of your apartment and find Frida Kahlo. But 
a lot of students don't even make it out of their apartment before spotting Frida. Because Frida is everywhere now, right? There are Frida magnets, Frida socks, Frida makeup, Frida emojis, Frida sanitary napkins, apparently. There's a book that came out last year called What Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly. Like, what would Jesus do? It's Freedomania, and it's been going on for a while. Every year, you might think, this is the year that Frida fades into the background. And then, there she is on a pair of flip-flops. Frida is the background now. She's an icon. No longer the artist she was, or even the person she was. She is whatever you want her to be. In the summer of 2001, a Japanese artist named Yasumasa Morimura debuts a series of 15 portraits of himself as Frida Kahlo, one of which is now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The portraits are photographs, and he's in heavy makeup, right down to the unibrow. This is what Morimura does, actually. He's kind of an actor-artist, transforming himself into other people. Like Cindy Sherman. In fact, he's posed as Cindy Sherman. And Marilyn Monroe, and the Mona Lisa, and the girl with the pearl earring. You get the idea. As part of his Frida show, he imagines himself in conversation with her. Frida asks him, Senor Morimura, how many times have you been to Mexico? And the artist says, I've yet to go even once. Frida says, Ay de mi, bueno, how many paintings of mine have you actually seen? And he says, One, I guess. How can you dare to say Frida Kahlo has had such an impact on you, says Frida. And Morimura says, As I am being inspired by you, Doña Frida, I drink in what I like to think of as your essence, so as to create a Frida of my own, in my own mind's eye. I just wanted to give form to what Doña Frida is to me. Well, let's start at the beginning. Magdalena Carmen Frida Kahlo y Calderon is born in 1907 in Mexico City. And three years later, the Mexican Revolution begins to push out the dictator Diaz. It takes two years for the fighting to stop and another eight years for all the infighting to stop. And Frida watches the fighting happen on the streets of Mexico City, the bullets zinging by. Her father, a photographer, had done well under the dictator Diaz. And now the money is drying up and he's becoming distant 
the women of the house, Frida's mother and her sisters, are having to keep things together. And then, at age seven, Frida gets polio. So, here she is, just a kid, already in pain as her family and her country and her body are all falling apart. And she starts to conflate these things. As Hayden Herrera puts it in her Frida biography, she's identifying Mexico's suffering with her own. She will eventually change her birth date to correspond with the year that the Mexican Revolution began. But when Frida begins high school in 1922, she's not thinking so much about politics and activism. She's thinking she'll go on to study medicine, become a doctor. And then the accident happens. You know this part, right? Frida is riding a bus when a trolley plows into it. A handrail from the trolley shoots out and runs through her. The way a sword pierces a bowl, she would say. Her right foot is crushed. Her spinal column is broken in three places. Her collarbone is broken, along with two of her ribs, her right leg, her pelvis. The handrail had pierced her side and come out her vagina. I lost my virginity, she would say. So, for the next 30 years, she's in and out of hospitals. She has some 30 operations. She doesn't become a doctor, of course. She becomes an artist and a socialist and marries Diego Rivera, the much-loved socialist muralist, some 20 years older. Diego cheats on her, and she cheats on him, and then he cheats on her with her sister, and then everything blows up. She moves back into her childhood house and paints it blue and fills it with cactus and birds and monkeys, and ultimately Diego again. Meanwhile, she makes nearly 200 paintings and drawings. Paintings of her hands cut off, her hair cut off, her heart cut open, and still lifes too. And then she dies at 47. After she dies, her work is mostly forgotten for the next 30 years. As Hayden Herrera puts it in an interview with PBS, By the time she started researching Kahlo in the 1970s, Kahlo was mostly known as, quote, Diego Rivera's sort of peculiar wife with the strange little paintings that most people really didn't like very much. In the mid-1970s, Hayden Herrera goes to Mexico City with some friends. She's earning her PhD at the City University of New York, and she doesn't know anything about Frida. But 
she sees some of Frida's work and learns about her story. And she's persuaded to write about her. The first biography of Frida comes out in 1976, in Spanish. In that same year, Herrera writes a long article about her life and work for Art Forum magazine. Soon after, the curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago begins working on a Frida show, the first real show of Kahlo's work in the U.S., the curator, Judith Kirshner, had only seen one of Kahlo's paintings in person. Most of what she knew of Kahlo was from Herrera. She's friends with Herrera. They were both undergrads at Barnard years ago. So, they work on the show together. They reach out to Dolores Almedo in Mexico. Now, Almedo had been a model and a muse for Diego Rivera when she was young. They were just friends, apparently. But as friends go, they were something else. Both volcanic, full of passion, and prone to blowing their top. Rivera married four times. Almedo married a bullfighter. Almedo became one of Mexico's leading art collectors. And when Kahlo died, she gave Rivera a home. She bought a great deal of his paintings. She also bought 25 of Kahlo's paintings. She didn't particularly like Kahlo's art when Kahlo was alive. And she seemed to like it only slightly more after Kahlo died. They weren't worth much. But she knew it was important to Rivera and that it might be lost if it wasn't collected. So, when Kirshner contacts Almedo, Almedo is leery about lending these works. But they end up becoming half the show. The show opens in 1978 and ends up traveling to five other museums. And when Almedo comes to see it in Chicago, she gets upset after all. Herrera has cast the show as an outgrowth of American feminism, Kahlo as a figure of resilience. And Almedo seems to think the curators are too American, too feminist, too young, really, to feel what she felt around Frida and Diego once upon a time in Mexico. But it's too late now. Frida is out of the bottle. And in death as in life, there's no putting her back in. Herrera's writing turns into her thesis which eventually turns into her Frida biography. And when it comes out in 1983, it's almost immediately a hit. Madonna wants to make a movie out of it, starring herself. And it takes Salma Hayek years to make the movie instead, starring herself. 
And she does, right, in 2002, directed by Julie Taymor. It gets six nominations for Academy Awards. Kahlo used to call her students when she was teaching art in Mexico City, or Fritos. And now, after this movie comes out, there's millions of Fritos all over the world. Herrera later admits she started writing about Kahlo because of the quality of Kahlo's life, not necessarily the quality of her work. Quote, I don't think I wrote the book because I thought she was a great painter. I thought she was fascinating. When her book is reprinted in 2002, the year the movie comes out, it's not even free down the cover anymore. Or her art. It's Salma Hayek as Frida. With a big call out on top. Now, a major motion picture. In 2007, a few years after the movie comes out, Herrera helps curate another major show of Kahlo's work at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. This time, there's an entire small gallery off to the side, filled with photographs of Kahlo, advertised as mostly never seen before. And there she is, with Diego, with her family, with famous people like Leon Trotsky, with whom she had an affair. Photos she had mostly given away, sometimes with a little lipstick kiss on them, to remember her by. The walker calls Kahlo a beguiling and willing photographic subject and the consummate manufacturer of her own image. Now, critics of Freedomania say it's a shame right? The trinkets and stuff. All this Frida and mania and not much art. But she's a symbol now of something larger than her work. Larger than herself, even. She had a tough life and was proud of it anyway. She broke a lot of taboos. People who feel they don't fit in find some affinity there. People with disabilities, people who feel compelled to hide their suffering. People who want to live, well, boldly. Frida is empowering. And maybe some Frida flip-flops help with that. Herrera, for her part, is kind of sanguine about this. She gets it. Quote, It's like when you go on a religious pilgrimage. You're probably going to buy a little image of the Virgin, she says. Frida's become Saint Frida. And people want to have a little piece of it. A little physical thing that has her image on it. I think Frida would have loved it and been amused by it, she says. And... Maybe she's right. 
Let's go back to the 1930s. Kala was begun painting in earnest after her accident, right? She puts a mirror over her bed so she can paint herself. And she begins collecting retablo paintings. A kind of Mexican folk art. Little paintings that memorialize some miraculous and personal event. A moment of divine intervention. Like an accident. An accident you survive, anyway. In fact, Kahlo's parents commissioned a retablo painting of her accident with the bus, with a little inscription at the bottom giving thanks to the Virgin of Sorrows for having saved their Nina Frida. Kahlo collects a couple thousand of these little paintings. And especially early on, her own paintings resemble them, including the little inscriptions. She's not only merging with Mexican tradition, she's merging with myth. And telling her story like this, she's making it into something totally iconic. Herrera suggests that Kahlo painted to see herself and to be seen. She paints her loneliness, her disappointments, her broken body, and says, look, this happened to me. Through some twist of fate, this happened to me. About a year before her death, in the spring of 1953, Kahlo finally gets her first solo show in Mexico. It's clear that Kahlo is fading. She's just had a bone transplant that didn't take. And by the end of summer, her leg will be amputated. If she's ever going to be honored for her art, now is the time. The night of the opening, as Herrera tells it, it suddenly becomes important that Kahlo be there at the gallery. Important to Kahlo, most of all. Her doctors are concerned. She's taken a turn for the worse. So, she has her bed taken over to the gallery. This big, four-poster bed with the canopy and mirror. And then, as people are gathering, Kahlo shows up in an ambulance. Sirens blaring. And she's put in the bed, and the bed is put in the middle of the gallery. The guests stand around her and sing and pay their respects. And Kahlo holds court there on her pillows, like the saints encased in cathedrals. In her final diary entry, Kahlo famously writes, I hope the exit is joyful, and I hope never to return. But that's not to say she didn't want to be remembered. (laughs) 
This has been The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll see you in a few weeks for the next episode of Season 3. And thanks very much for listening.